I'd invite you this morning, uh, if you're with us or online, to take a Bible and turn with me to the book of Ruth. We are in the second week of two weeks getting to look at the Old Testament text uh, from Ruth. Today we find ourselves in the first few verses of chapter 3 and then towards the end of chapter 4. We begin with Ruth chapter 3, the first five verses. Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to Ruth, said to her, My daughter, shouldn't I seek security for you so that things might go well for you? Now isn't Boaz, whose young women you were with, our relative? Tonight he will be winnowing barley at the threshing floor. You should bathe. Put on some perfume. Wear some nice clothes. And then go down to the threshing floor. Don't make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. And when he lies down, notice the place where he is lying, then go, uncover his feet, and lie down. And he will tell you what to do. Ruth replied to her, I'll do everything you are telling me. Now chapter 4, verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. He was intimate with her, and the Lord let her become pregnant. And she gave birth to a son. The women said to Naomi, may the Lord be blessed who today hasn't left you without a redeemer. May his name be proclaimed in Israel. He will restore your life and sustain you in your old age. Your daughter-in-law who loves you has given birth to him. She's better for you than seven sons. And my daughter, the youngest of four, said amen. Naomi took the child and held him to her breast, and she became his guardian. The neighborhood women gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They called his name Obed, which down in the margin says it means one who serves God. And he became Jesse's father and David's grandfather. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. I... uh, I'm fascinated uh, by reading biographies and memoirs. Um, Each year when I kind of put a reading plan together for the year, I always include four, five, six of them. Um, This year I read uh, Eugene Peterson's biography, which I I loved. Um, You may be familiar, Eugene Peterson is the one who translated the the message, which has sold millions and millions of copies. But one of my favorite parts of his biography is how the message came into existence. He had no plan to write the message, a translation. Instead, he was pastoring a church in Baltimore, which is where he spent most of his pastoral ministry. One of the fascinating things to me about Eugene Peterson is he really never pastored a church much larger than about 300 people. But he was teaching an adult Sunday school class, and uh, frankly, they just didn't get it. He was frustrated with them, and he was teaching on, the, on Ephesians, and they were struggling to interact. And so he took what he kind of did as a discipline. He was very good in biblical languages, and he translated um, the text each week kind of in his own language. And so he started sharing that with the class, and all of a sudden it clicked with them, and they loved it, and they started passing it around to friends, and pretty soon he had the message on his hands. Um, I'm reading uh, the memoir right now of the author uh, Philip Yancey, who's written a number of books. And, and he begins his memoir by talking about the fact that when he was just a little boy, um, his father died from polio. 
And that's all he knew of the story until much later in life, he took his fiance home to meet the family and they were going through family albums, pictures of the family. And while he was going through one of the albums, a newspaper article that was hidden behind some pictures fell on the ground. And it was an article about his father and mother and about how when his dad was suffering with polio, he was in an iron lung and he was frustrated and tired of being in it. And they both sensed together that God had told them that God was going to heal him. And so against medical advice, he left the hospital and two weeks later died. And he talks about how he, he didn't know that story into adulthood. But as he began to know that story, he began to make sense of how some of the ways his mother had reacted with he and his brother and the decisions they made in his life. But also, if you know some of his writing, one of my favorite Philip Yancey books is a book called Disappointment with God. And about how he sensed some of even the things that he has written about in his life as a response to this story he really didn't know. I, I just finished a, a biography of the president, James Madison. And uh, it was interesting to me, if you know the story, you know that he is maybe the most influential voice in the formation of the Constitution of the United States. But it was fascinating to me that the biographer made the point that this idea of separation in church and st of church and state that was so important to Madison and so woven into the American Constitution, for him at least, was not so much out of enlightenment ideology and a desire for kind of freedom of conscience as much as it was that throughout his whole life he suffered with epilepsy. And that as a little boy, when he would have epileptic fits, his his parents would take him to the church, and in, even as late as the 18th century, many people and Christians believed that epilepsy was caused by demon possession. And he was taken to church, and often attempts of exercising whatever that was in him that was causing those things. And, and out of that failure, kind of the feelings of many in the Christian community looking down on him, and so much of his desire of separation in church and state had not as much to do with the Enlightenment ideology as it did with his own narrative and own story of frustration with the church that he was a part of. Our, our lives are complicated and messy, aren't they? I, I was telling my kind of story. Somebody was asking me about it. A student was asking me about it the other day. And as I was telling my story, I realized, it, you know, Debbie and I have been married 31 years. And even while we were dating, when, when we knew, we kind of felt like, well, this, this, something's happening here. Um, we would go to dinner and, and we would talk about where do we see ourselves in 10 years? And we oftentimes would pull out napkins and kind of talk about those things. And but as I think about that plan, that may have helped us get some education done and may have been opportunities for some doors to open into the future. But the reality is my life, our life together is just a messy story of, as I was telling the student, I realized, oh man, like so much of my story now is rooted in heartbreak and disappointed dreams and in conflicts that led to this or moments that led to opportunities and connections that you just never would have believed. Our lives are messy and what's true for us as individuals, individuals is even more true for our lives as communities, right? There's a history to this church and some of it's good. Um, that was a joke, by the way, you're supposed to laugh there. <laughs> The university has a very fascinating history. When I was at Paznaz, they have a big wall with the pictures of all of the former pastors on the wall, even Brzee's on the wall. Like there's, and I used to love for some of the saints to kind of tell me stories. And they usually went like this. Oh, yeah, so-and-so, they were our pastor for about six years. And oh, man, there's some really good. Oh, but have you heard the story? 
right? <laughs> they tell a story. And now I realize I'm on the wall and some saint is saying, oh yeah, Scott was here for about nine years and some good things happened. Oh, but did you hear the story? <laughs> like our lives are just like this complicated mess. And this morning as we think in conclusion about this unique book of Ruth, we have to wonder, what is Ruth doing here as a book? That the book of Ruth sits there in the middle of Israel's history as a reminder of the messiness of our history as God's people and of the often hiddenness of God's providential work in our midst. I'm more and more convinced the book of Ruth exists to, to remind us of how messy and complicated and, and how unique the work of God is in our midst. As I mentioned last week, God hardly even shows up at Ruth. in Ruth. At least we were in Esther a few weeks ago. God didn't even show up. At least he shows up a little bit in Ruth. But it's often offstage, really the only direct action God gets in the entire four chapters of Ruth is God gets a little bit of credit for Ruth getting pregnant at the end. But other than that, it is this messy work of God in our midst. If you have the text open this morning, there's a, a wonderful art, artistry. It, it's beautifully put together as a story. And I want to walk you back through it. The first and fourth chapters have a kind of symmetry to them. Chapter one begins with the tragedy. Uh, Elimelech and Naomi live in the time of the judges. It's a time of famine. They live in Bethlehem, which means house of bread, but there's no more bread. And so they decide in the midst of this famine to head to the land of Moab to see if they can survive there. A risky choice, maybe a choice some in the community look down upon, but a choice they felt like they had to make. They go to Moab, they have two sons. Those two sons take Moabite wives. Orpah and Ruth. As we saw last week, uh, Elimelech dies and then the two sons die. Naomi and the two women are left. Naomi realizes she probably doesn't have much of a future at all in a territory that is not her own. And although it's quite risky to go home, she's heard that God has begun to supply bread in the house of bread again. And so maybe she can go home. But she tells Orpah and Ruth, you stay here. Um, your chances are much better as Moabite women to go back to your mother's homes and maybe they'll find husbands for you and maybe your future will be, will be secured in the land of your people. They don't want to do that, but eventually Orpah says, that's probably a good idea, and she goes. But as we saw, Ruth makes this amazing pledge to, to her mother-in-law. Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will obey my people, your God will be my God. And so the first chapter is this story of tragedy and death, but it concludes with this amazing statement of, in the Hebrew, the term is hesed, H-E-S-E-D, hesed, faithfulness, loyalty. The hesed, the loyalty, the faithfulness that God shows to God's people, Ruth now shows to Naomi. And we have this beautiful poetic embodiment of the hesed of God in this foreign woman, Ruth, to her mother-in-law, Naomi. And then chapters two and three actually kind of mirror each other also. So in chapters two and three, the structure is always this. Ruth and Naomi have a conversation and they devise a plan. And then they kind of hope the plan goes okay. And then in the middle of the chapter, Boaz shows up and somehow out of Boaz's 
rich and faithful character himself, the plan works out. And then at the end of the chapter, Ruth and Naomi get together, high five each other and go, yes, that plan worked. And so in chapter two, it begins with this plan. Ruth and Naomi get together and say, well, now as we go back to the house of bread, it's harvest season. And there is this law in Israel called gleaning. We've talked about this in the past. There are several economic laws that were really important to Israel's life. Laws like tithing and Sabbath, laws like Jubilee. But one of the really important ones was this law gleaning that said, as you harvest the field, some stuff's going to fall on the ground and you're going to put some stuff on the, the cart or the truck, but it's going to fall off. And so as stuff falls off, you have to leave it there for the, the wanderer, the sojourner, the alien to come through and to be able to receive from what they, from what, from the gleanings of the field. And in particular, you can't harvest the edges of the field. So as people come through, those who are in need, you are ready for them. And so chapter two, Ruth and Naomi says to Ruth, so go, I've got this distant relative named Boaz. Go to Boaz's field and glean there. There will probably be other aliens and sojourners there, wanderers, and it's also harvest time. And, and harvesting is a, very much a community-based activity so that as you are uh, winnowing the, the, the wheat, or in this case, the barley, it's not a hard process, but it's kind of tedious of trying to get all the chaff and get the grain separated out, throwing it up in the air, the chaff blowing away. And so go and participate there. So that's the plan. And then she goes and Boaz notices this strange Moabite woman in his field taking from the gleanings. And he asks some folks, who is that woman? And they tell her, tell him her story about her faithfulness, her hesed, her loyalty to her mother-in-law. And Boaz is moved by this. Thinks, oh, what a woman of character. And then he does the coolest thing, maybe my favorite part of the book of Ruth. Boaz says, hey guys, hey, psst, 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 psst. Gets the harvesters together. Says, hey, listen, it's a woman named Ruth. She's a Moabite. She's taken from the gleanings. Do me a favor. As you take some of the bales to the storage place, drop one or two of them and leave them behind for her to take. It's such a cool part of the story. And so they kind of accidentally drop one, right? <laughs> and Ruth picks it up and takes it home. And then chapter two ends with Ruth and Naomi having the, the food that they need to survive. And they high five each other. Oh, that was a great plan. Then chapter three, the harvest is beginning to end. And... Pretty soon when the harvest ends, the gleanings will end and their needs for food will, and the food that supplies those needs will also end. And so the text we read today, solidly PG-13, a little risky. VeggieTales kind of skips over this part of the story a bit. But Naomi comes up with a plan. Hey, Ruth, Boaz seems to like you. Kind of throwing gleanings around for us. Why don't you do this? We're coming down to the end of the harvest. Big parties being thrown. Everybody's celebrating. The, there's bread back in the house of bread. And everybody's partying, drinking a little bit. Why don't you go to the party and stop wearing all the widow's clothing? It's time to spruce yourself up. Put on a nice dress. Little Chanel number five. Dress in a way that lets the town know you're done mourning, you are now available if that's a potential possibility. And here's kind of the shady part. 
keep your eye on Boaz. And when he (laughs) has had enough and he falls asleep on the threshing floor, go and uncover his feet, lie down next to him. Now, all of that language is very euphemistic. And scholars would say, the writer's giving us enough to go home. but not enough to go, oh, like there's, there's, a, there's a little bit of shadiness there. Now, it's important that what Ruth does is actually quite risky for a number of reasons. She's making herself incredibly vulnerable in a very vulnerable place. This could go incredibly wrong. Not only could Boaz react very badly to this and shame and all sorts of ugliness could come in response to Ruth, but, but even the change in appearance coming, this could have led to all sorts of really negative things happening with the men present at the threshing floor. But again, Boaz responds to this not, not with anger, but sees in her this this desperation, sees in her this vulnerability, sees in her this opportunity to, as she says, to be a redeemer in this moment. And he becomes, and this is a key word for the whole story, he becomes Ruth's redeemer and and Naomi's redeemer and here again makes a, a kind of pledge to do that. Ruth goes home again at the end of chapter three. They high five. It worked. (laughs) So in chapter one, we had this tragedy mixed with this and then ended with this statement of covenant. Now in chapter four, it gets inverted. Boaz realizes, well, and it's, (laughs) I love chapter three. Boaz at one point kind of goes, I'm kind of an old man. Like there are a lot of younger guys you could have tried to get connected to. And not only that, I'm really not the first relative in line. And so he finds the first relative and he says to this relative, listen, there's a field that still belongs to Limelech. Unfortunately, in that day, because they were women, Naomi and Ruth didn't have a claim to that field. And so the closest male relative could buy the field. And so Boaz says, hey, listen, this field's available if you want to buy it. And the guy says, oh, yeah, I'd love to buy it. He goes, there is just this catch. If you buy the field, you get Naomi and Ruth too. To which the guy goes, oh, I got a family already. I got enough problems without having to take on that burden. To which Boaz goes, great, I'll take on that burden. And Boaz makes this strange statement of covenant and hesed also, much different, but similar in some ways to the commitment of hesed that Ruth makes earlier. But now instead of ending with tragedy, the story ends with redemption and it ends with joy. It ends with not only bread being there and available for all, but now Ruth is able to give birth to this child and And Naomi now has a future, and Ruth now has a future, and they name him Obed, and he becomes the grandfather of David, and the narrative of God is all kind of woven together, and it's it's fascinating and powerful. It's a beautiful story, strange story, mysterious story. But in the time that we have left this morning, I just want to ask this question, why do we tell this story? And in particular, why does Israel tell this strange story 
with all its oddness and all of its risk, with all of its vulnerabilities, with all of its kind of shadiness at parts. I shared with you last week that there are a couple of theories on how Ruth came to be as a book. I share with you that one of the theories is that Ruth is kind of early literature around the time of David. When people are wondering, is David really the right king? I mean, he's not Saul's son. So this is a whole new dynasty in place. And frankly, even in Jesse's house, he's not the oldest. In fact, they called him the Hakatan. They think of him kind of as the runt of the litter. And I heard that he got his results back from Ancestry.com and he's one eighth Moabite. Is really that the kind of person we want leading this nation? And as I said last week, the story of Ruth then serves as a reminder to God's people that in the complicated decisions and circumstances of life, finding, embodying, and reflecting the faithfulness of God, even in small ways, opens the possibilities of God's redemptive action. Let me say that again. The story of Ruth serves as a reminder to God's people that in the complicated decisions and circumstances of life, finding, embodying, and reflecting the hesed, the faithfulness of God, even in small ways, opens the possibilities of God's redemptive action. They didn't seem all that huge at the time, but Ruth hesed to Naomi, a community that practiced gleaning so that the possibility of them having what they needed in the moment is significant to the story. The integrity of Boaz to not misuse these vulnerable women for his own benefit, but to see in them this hesed, this character that was not only more than he could exploit, but something that's actually exemplary of God's people. In some ways, as I said last week, this whole story is to say there is more to the lineage of David than purity of genealogy, purity of DNA with regards to Israel. In fact, if anything, the Hesed embodied in Ruth is more in line with the kind of person we want leading God's people than the purity of the lineage. You with me? And that small acts of obedience, small acts of faithfulness, especially in unsettled times, are never trivial, but often become woven into and make space for an opportunity for the unique activity of God's redemption in the world. But I said there's a second theory I probably lean on this one even a little harder. The second theory is that the book of Ruth emerges kind of late in Israel's history. Now hang with me here. That it emerges during the time actually post-exile in Babylon. When the people of Judah get out of exile, move back to Jerusalem, we get a couple of books, Ezra and Nehemiah. It's this time of unsettledness, of an uncertain future. And so Nehemiah gets busy building walls and reconstructing the city and gets an infrastructure bill gets passed in Jerusalem. <laughs> Thanks be to God. And they, it passes and they begin to build stuff. And Ezra gets the religious life of the people back together. 
and sees it this way. The problem is we were unfaithful to God. And so now let's be faithful. But one of the ways that they had to learn to be faithful was there were very strong restrictions in that day about Judean or Israelite men marrying foreign women. And so if you're still with me, the theory is this. Somebody wrote Ruth subversively during the time of the Babylonian, post-Babylonian exile to say to Ezra and Nehemiah, yeah, we get it. We got to pull our life together. But wait a minute. Before we exclude all the foreigners, before we exclude all of those people that seem like a burden on our life right now when things are chaotic, before we do that, can we remind you of a very important story in our history? That not only did a Moabite woman get included in our history, but she became in so many ways the model of God's Hasid in our story. And she became the grandmother of, Ru of David. This lineage we're so excited about restarting through Zerubbabel. It's a subversive story that says that Ruth is a reminder that during times when God's people are pulling in boundaries and strengthening the lines of division, that the foreigner or outsider is not just in need of redemption, but may in fact be the vessel God uses for our redemption. Let me say that again, because I worked really hard on that sentence. <laughs> so good. The story of Ruth serves as a reminder during times when God's people are pulling in the boundaries and strengthening lines of division that the foreigner or outsider is not just in need of redemption, but may in fact be the vessel God uses for our redemption. Wow. Now I love that line. If you listen well, that one could get you fired. Because Ruth exists to mess with us. And if you're listening well this morning, I, I want you to hear me say this. As we've been looking through this wisdom tradition, I think it's important to recognize the way, and I hope this isn't controversial because I think this is true. The way the Bible kind of argues with each other every once in a while. It invites us to live in a kind of godly tension. So as we've looked at before, Proverbs invites us to say, if you do good things, good things happen. If you do bad things, bad things happen, which is generally true. And then we have the book of Job to say, wait a minute. Before we judge each other based on our circumstances, remember this man from the land of Uts named Job and everything fell apart. But they, they talk to each other. They, they invite us to feel some tension there. And Ezra and Nehemiah, I think rightly say, during times of turbulence and upheaval, we have to ask really serious questions. Is everybody okay? Right? Are we all right? Are our folk being taken care of? We want to take care of our folk, right? And during times of crisis, you get a little navel gazing. You, you start to look inward, make sure everything, structure, economy, everything's fine. But hear me this morning, the book of Ruth, and it's not me, blame Ruth. The book of Ruth is here to mess with us, to say, every time we encounter those folks, especially like Ruth and Naomi, pushed around by the circumstances of life, 
doing what is, whatever is necessary to survive another day. That we as the people of God have this story that says, maybe within that community of people stranded at a border are all sorts of chaos, but maybe there are also some exemplary stories of needy people being faithful to each other that put to shame the hesed of the people of God living in a time of security. And perhaps even beyond a charitable sense that says we should help and make space for that person, perhaps there is even a tweak that Ruth makes that says, and maybe we don't just exist to be their help, but perhaps even the transformation God wants to have happen in us will happen through that one that we think is the one we think who is in need turns the tables and shows how deeply we are in need of the transformation that may come through them. So I've been struggling with this message and thanks be to God. He gave me a great illustration last night. Deb and I were gone for about 48 hours with some friends uh, we went out of town to a concert. It was fun. It was one of those concerts that people in their 50s go to hear somebody in their 70s because we were raised in the 80s. Um, it was fun. But we flew home together uh, yesterday afternoon, just a kind of hour and a half flight, short flight home. And we were on Southwest Airlines, which was fine, except we got bad numbers. So, you know, if you fly Southwest, you don't get assigned seats. You get it. You get It's a cattle call. You get a, n- a number. And we got bad ones. And so they the, kept saying over the PA, this is almost a full flight. So just take whatever seat you can get. Right. And so we had bad numbers. So we were all in the back. And sure enough, there were only, I think, two empty seats left on the plane. There was a seat between Debbie and me. And then there was one, I think, a row back. And I, I was watching the door and kind of... Come on, baby. Um, and sure enough, it looked like they were about to close the door. And Debbie and I were like, yeah, we're going to get an empty seat. And just as they were about to close the door, bless her heart, this little mom came in, maybe 20 years old, maybe, with a nine-month-old baby in a carrier and all the baby equipment flailing behind her, right? And she... Bless her heart. There's no seats. I mean, there's only empty seats are at the very back of the plane. Here she is. And you could just feel, right? Like, this is not a Christian flight. You could feel all the folks on Southwest Airlines kind of going, oh, right? And I know this isn't Christian to confess, but you know, when that happens on a flight, what you tend to do then is not look at them in the eye. <laughs> and even though I've been losing weight, I tried to puff out my cheeks. You know, and look like... I am a 300-pound man. You do not, there's no space here. Um, And sure enough, here she came, bless her heart, baby crying, stuff falling all over the place. And she stopped right at a row and she says, that seat taken. And Debbie, who is much more Christian than me, which is an established fact, um, Debbie immediately switched from bloated Southwest mode to, oh yeah, of course. And so she moved over and, and, 
Debbie held the baby. She went into full kind of mom mode. Um, was holding the baby and, and helped get, you know, people started helping get stuff put away. And uh, Deb, as she started talking to this gal, you know, and said, hey, don't worry about this. You're fine. And the poor girl was just sweating all over. First flight with this baby, just terrified, recognizing how inconvenient all this is. And Debbie said to her, listen, we've had four kids. We have, for decades, we've made travel miserable for strangers. So don't feel bad, right? Like, this is fine. Before we were even off the ground, this, this girl had shared more of her story than we needed to know. But it was this, this story about an unexpected baby in a broken relationship, headed to see family that are very distant and not broken too. And she just was sharing with Debbie so much of the brokenness of her life and and I was sitting in my seat and I had my notes out trying to kind of figure out how am I going to land this Ruth plane tomorrow. And so here I am rooted in the story of Naomi and Ruth. And about mid-flight I realized, oh yeah, like this is, here's, there, there they are in our row, right? Here's a little Naomi carrying a little Ruth. Trying to figure out how to survive another day and family systems and structures that so often when you walk in, go, there's not room for you here. Desperate for just somebody to make room. And I was thankful by the end that Debbie especially had been in God's providence um, the right person to make space for her when she needed it in that moment. But as I walked as I watched her walk off the plane, I couldn't help but think that Ruth messes with us even more because it doesn't just invite us as God's people to try to find the small ways of faithfulness to make room for the Naomi's and Ruth's that we find in our lives, but to be absolutely convinced, not just that they need space, but they may be the source through which God brings our transformation. Please don't misunderstand me and send me a bad email later. I, God is always the source of our transformation, but God always uses messengers, others, as the source of our transformation. And Ruth exists to shape our eyes to believe that outsiders are not just inconveniences. And when we're really Christian, we find space for them. But it messes with us to begin to be a people who believe that not only are we the instrument of their redemption, but powerfully they may be the instrument of ours. And so this morning, we come around a table, a table that reminds us that we needed redeemed, and Christ is that redeemer. That one who embodies the hesed, the faithful love of God that always makes space for us, even in the midst of our broken, messy narratives and somehow weaves them together for his glory. But it is also a table that reminds us as we gather, there are a lot more seats available at this table. And there are strangers and aliens and sojourners 
even in times where you feel like you need to pull in the stakes and build up the walls, there are those God has made space for at his table who actually also may be the source of the hesed that transforms us into the body of Christ as we gather together. This morning, hopefully you received elements on the way in and some of you who are online may have received some this week. I would invite you to take those out and begin to prepare them. But I would love us not just to prepare bread and cup this morning and there, thank you. And some folks are gonna come from the back to, um, if, you, if you didn't receive one this morning, if you would just slip up your hand as we sing this morning. Um, you will receive, I'm not sure we'll give you those elements, but I would love for us to prepare our hearts. Uh, there's a chorus that I love uh, for us to sing. There is a redeemer, Jesus, God's own son. Let's sing that together as we prepare our hearts this morning. There is a redeemer, Jesus, God's own son. Precious Lamb of God, Messiah, Holy One. Thank you, oh my Father, for giving us your Son and leaving your Spirit till the the elements out in front of you. Let me pray a prayer of blessing and consecration. Almighty God, we hold in our hands really common things, just bread and cup. However, they are a means of grace to us today and a reminder not a single person sitting in this room has a life that has gone according to our exact plan and certainly not according to yours. And so we come and confess that our lives in so many ways are broken like this bread is broken. But we also confess that you are not absent from broken body and shed blood, but nowhere are you more present than in the brokenness of our lives. Healing, extending steadfast love and mercy, weaving together your story even out of broken bits and pieces. But we hold these elements not just to marvel that you are a God who can work in brokenness, but we come to partake of them today, to eat them, to become them. And so allow the faithfulness 
of a foreign woman named Ruth to remind us today that we were once outsiders brought into your family by grace. And give us the eyes to see somewhat like Boaz saw, not a burden to take on, but a character to celebrate, to include, to redeem. And may we be reflections of your grace like Ruth was to Naomi, like Boaz was to Ruth, like Christ has been to us. May we be that to those we encounter. The night that Jesus was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread. He raised it, gave thanks, and then broke it. He said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Take it, eat it today in remembrance of a chesed that will not let us go. After supper was over, he took the cup, blessed it, described it as, as his blood, which is poured out for us to preserve us blameless unto everlasting life. Let us take and drink this morning. Thankful for the way he is redeeming our lives and using us to redeem the lives of others. May it be so, we pray. By your grace, make us the body of Christ. God's people said, Amen. Let's stand together. Praise us, 
voices praise God from all blessings flow praise him all creatures here below praise him above the heavenly Son and Holy Ghost. Before uh, I pray a prayer blessing on you this morning, just three or four things I want to remind you of. During this November, a couple of things. Um, we are taking offerings during these Sundays of November uh, to help our friends in Southeast Asia. 
uh, put a roof on an orphanage and buy a piece of property. In the grand scheme of life and economies, $19,000 sounds like a lot of money in some ways, but not a whole lot in other ways. But can I remind you this morning, small acts of faithfulness become big moments in the hands of God. And so I'd love for you to lean in and participate in that offering. We also, during the season, have baskets and all the food baskets, all that kind of stuff. Um, and get to, again, in small ways, become an act of mercy for so many of our community. Pay attention to some of the announcements, emails, website, all that kind of stuff for more information on that. But we'd love for some of you to lean in and help us in those ways. Don't forget that this week we uh, celebrate uh, two women who, who we have lost as part of this community who are such great examples of what we talked about today, of of people who allowed God to weave his story into their life. And so Wednesday at three o'clock, we will celebrate Kay Kinsler's life and we'll be here in the sanctuary. We'd love for you to be a part of that. And then next Sunday at three o'clock, we'll celebrate Janella Haygood and uh, give God thanks for the way that he used her um, in this community and in the university and in so many people's lives. And so please pray for those families. Thanks for the ways that you lean in to care. Um, but would love for you to come and celebrate um, those two services this week. And then next week, uh, we got to gather around the table. Next week, we get to throw people in the water. That's so much fun. And so a couple of folks have reached out this week and said, I I'd like to be baptized. Wednesday night at 7 o'clock, if you're interested, we will have a baptism class. You're welcome. Um, but if you want to reach out to the church, contact me, email me or email the church or call us. Uh, we would love to know that and get you prepared. Uh, but it's going to be so much fun next week to celebrate putting to death the old life and coming to a whole new life in Christ Jesus. Well, if you've listened well these two weeks, um, Ruth will mess with you. Um, and it messes with us in some good ways to remind us of all the ways that God works and moves through us. And so unto him who by his power at work within us, that is able to do immeasurably more than all we could ever ask or imagine, to him be glory in us, this people who have gathered around his table, who he calls his children, who he calls his church, and in Christ Jesus, our Lord and Savior and Redeemer, now and for all generations. Go in his peace. Blessings on you.